When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, April 17th, 2023. On the show today, news, listener questions, a new universal food survey. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of Universal Orlando's Sinbad attraction. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that being abducted by aliens just might be the vacation he needs right now. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? As long as they don't get handsy. <laughs> Having just spent time on the, the Galactic Star Cruiser, love the view. Yeah, yeah. Just don't need the probing. You know, words to live by, Jim. Words to live by. There we go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Thomas Slick, Mavia330, Scott Rochecko, and Seth Johnson. And longtime subscribers, PC Lehman, Sue Coppola, hey Sue. Long Librarian, uh, Jim, I think that's a new Marvel superhero, Ooh. and Conefrog, mm -hmm. uh, also Jim, sidekick. <laughs> Jim, these are the Universal team members responsible for selling the stage equipment at the soon-to-close Poseidon's Fury at Islands of Adventure. So if you're in the market for lasers, water cannons, or gently used flamethrowers with free shipping, please get in touch. True story. Mm, okay. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in a second. We will, we will. But Jim, on to the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, some mm -hmm. quick news. Breakfast returns to the Garden Grill in Epcot on June 14th. So we get characters and waffles. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. <laughs> also, uh, I don't know if you were watching the Star Wars Celebration out of London this week. Did mm -hmm. you see that? Disney announced that Star Tours is going to be getting new video in 2024. Yes. And if you're a fan of Grogu, there's going to be a reason to go slide back over to Star Tours. So it looks like we're going to get uh, some new scenes there. I think everyone expects Mandalorian and Grogu. Um, Jim, any truth to the rumor that the current name of the ride, which is Star Tours 2, The Adventures Continue, will be changed to Star Tours 3, Electric Boogaloo? <laughs> no? Also, Jim, I, uh, speaking of uh, Star Tours, I heard this wacky rumor mm -hmm. for Disneyland, and that's that if Disneyland ever gets an Avatar ride, mm -hmm. it'll use the Star Tours um, yeah. ride vehicles um, as simulators. Okay. It wouldn't be an exact clone. Do you think of Anaheim as it's the opposite of Orlando? They do not have the blessing of size. So it's just, especially right. since Avatar seems to be headed to Tomorrowland, you know, you have to make use of the space that's available there. And I'm hearing initial Avatar going into the old Carousel of Progress theater go-round building. But should they decide to expand the footprint outward, yeah, Star Wars or the Star Tours simulator building could get repurposed. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Archibald, one more uh, bit of news. So on last week's show, we talked about the February 8th contract between the Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District and Disney. Mm -hmm. As you all know, many of our listeners are lawyers. Here is a representative comment, and I'm excluding everyone's names 
uh, on it. What I found most interesting is how much time was obviously put into drafting the severability clause. This wasn't your ordinary clause that is seen in most contracts. Most of those only call for the severability component, not for the next closest enforceable addition to the contract. That was great draftsmanship. Mm -hmm. Courts and judges aren't huge fans necessarily of the closest additional concept mm -hmm. because that requires some speculation and guesswork and can itself lead to further legal challenges on enforceability. But at the end of the day, great provision. Mm. Also, uh, shout out to listener Matt McKinn, mm -hmm. who was apparently the one who tipped off NPR about our coverage of the Reedy Creek Improvement District meeting. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Also, Jim, uh, this week, I don't know if you noticed this, mm -hmm. but the governor proposed adding tolls and hotel taxes to Reedy Creek. Yeah. He said, uh, yeah, he said, uh, quote, we're going to look at things like taxes on the hotels. We're going to look at things like tolls on the roads, he said, adding the state would also look to develop property it owns uh, near Disney. However, Jim, mm -hmm. as our legal friends have pointed out, the development contract that exists now between Reedy Creek and Disney restricts what the district can develop on that property. And the agreement also anticipates that the new board would try something like this and specifically prohibits it against Disney also agrees. So there's a future laws regulation section in the severability clause that again says the next closest legal thing to what's in this document has to be done after that law is passed. I mean, it was, it really was future thinking. Oh, good. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. In terms of toll roads, uh, our lawyer friends uh, point out this. If you read Florida statute 338, 165, one, it says that any tolls collected on a road first go to repay the bonds that finance the road mm -hmm. and since those are disney bonds the state would be adding fees to tourists and residents in order to pay off disney's bonds so it seems the governor is threatening to raise tolls to give money to disney then once those bonds are paid off florida statute 338 says that the tolls go to pay for operation maintenance and improvement of those roads again i'm not sure how this is a threat because disney already pays for mm -hmm. those without tolls and then once all of that is paid for, Florida Statute 338 2 mm -hmm. says that the money goes to the county to pay for its roads. That would be mostly Orange County, Florida, mm -hmm. except for the roads around the All-Star Resorts, which are in Osceola County. And as an Osceola County taxpayer, I would be absolutely fine with that. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing that complicates mm -hmm. this, uh, Jim, is what the Florida legislature did when it revamped the Reedy Creek Improvement District. So when it did mm -hmm. that, buried in the text in section nine specifically, it gives the district special authority around roads, bridges, and, and so on. So the district's roads, Disney donated those to the state years ago. Mm -hmm. Section nine, which is titled authority of the district with respect to roads, bridges, street sliding, et cetera, specifically gives Reedy Creek the power of a special road district in Florida and also the power of a special road and bridges district in Florida which gives them the power to own, acquire, open, extend, close, vacate, abandon, mm -hmm. construct, reconstruct, replace, expand, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Um, all, all kinds of roads uh, in the district. The other interesting thing that the old Reedy Creek board did right before they got switched over was to make public an assessment of the condition of its roads and bridges right before the handover. And they also described the methodology used for the assessment. Did you see this? It was in the uh, February 8th meeting minutes. Yeah, I mean, I again, it, it, basically, it basically says, for the last five years, we've looked at our roads and we've assessed them such that around 70% of them are in excellent mm -hmm. condition, 23-ish percent of them are in acceptable condition, and like 7% are in poor condition. So we'll work on that 7%. I don't know if you've been following the latest. They're talking about trying to claw back authority, the Tourism Oversight Board. But 
have you been following the torrential rains that flooded Fort Lauderdale? Uh, Fort Lauderdale, yeah, closed the the airport. airport. Okay, and the mayor of Fort Lauderdale was on television earlier today and was talking about that, yes, we're, we're dealing with the flooding and more raining is coming. No, we haven't heard from the governor yet. That's because he's still on his book tour? Oof. I get from their side of the fence, there's what they're saying, but there's also what they're doing, and the visuals ain't helping, Len. Also, even if it wasn't on a book tour, if you're still fighting with Disney, probably not the uh, the thing that people in Broward County want right now. No, not at all. Not at all. But I think the um, the assessment mm-hmm. in the, uh, the handover document mm-hmm. around the percentage of roadways uh, in good con- condition mm-hmm. is sort of like a stake in the ground. That says, we know you guys are taking over the roads. Mm-hmm. Here's how good they were when we gave them to you. Good luck. <laughs> oh, God. Wouldn't that be the cherry on the Sunday that, you know, with these, these folks in charge, the roads around Disney World deteriorate? And I mention this because, like, I, I recently went to, drove from Orlando, you know, where I live, to, mm-hmm. to Miami mm-hmm. um, on the turnpike. Yep. And one of the things that I realized on the turnpike was there were sections of the turnpike in which you could not go the posted speed limit mm-hmm. because the roads were both narrow and not well enough maintained yeah. to be able to go that fast. So we all know like in some states like South Carolina mm-hmm. where, you know, North Carolina uh, going into South Carolina is a four lane part of I-95 mm-hmm. and then it constricts down to two lanes mm-hmm. in South Carolina. Then it expands out to like six lanes. It's like it's like the, the heavens opening up once you get to Georgia. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But while you're in South Carolina, mm-hmm. it, and I get, I've, I've driven this, this section of road mm-hmm. dozens of times. Mm-hmm. While you're in South Carolina, there might as well not be a speed limit because the roads are so poorly maintained mm-hmm. and so many trucks yeah. are on the road. There, there's no possible way you could go over 55 miles an hour on an average basis all the way through South Carolina. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So there could be the speed limit could be 90, mm-hmm. you know, for all they care. And it's the same thing on the turnpike. It's like you know, you could put whatever speed limit you want mm-hmm. on the turnpike in Florida, but the roads in some parts of it aren't in good enough shape. To support whatever we want. And I, I think that's why Disney did this, actually. Okay. Anyway, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. So. All right. On to surveys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, our friend at Nikki sent in a new Universal Orlando survey mm-hmm. about dining options in the parks and city walk. Among the interesting questions were these. Were there any foods that you expected to find but could not find? Mm-hmm. So Nikki wrote in that she expected more variety around uh, beyond burgers, hot dogs, and fries. Mm-hmm. At quick service places, and that other than the Harry Potter lands, mm-hmm. it was tough to find that variety. So that's a fair point, actually. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. The uh, and I'm not sure whether the next question in the survey was based on Nikki's response, mm-hmm. but the next question was this: What other kinds of foods did you expect to find in the park? Mm-hmm. And so Nikki suggested things like wraps, sushis, uh, creative fresh salads, mm-hmm. and more plant-based options, plus more uh, plus more ethnic-inspired options, mm-hmm. and. And here's why I mentioned the ethnic-inspired things. I was talking to, uh, about this to Laurel. Mm-hmm. We were walking around, uh, you know, one night. And the question I asked is this. Is what we commonly know is like Mexican, Italian, and Chinese food mm-hmm. now so ingrained in American culture that nobody considers it ethnic? Hmm. Like, and the example I give is this. Like, the second best pizza I get in New York mm-hmm. has dough handmade by a Salvadoran guy mm-hmm. and is topped with sauce made by a grandmother from Honduras. Mm-hmm. Like nothing in that entire transaction has been within in a thousand miles of Italy, right? There's there is no way that that pizza is Italian, right? <laughs> but I would say, right, 
that because of the people in the process involved mm-hmm. that get that pizza to me, it makes that pizza slice mm-hmm. quintessentially American. Like it is the melting pot yeah. of food, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I find so bizarre sometimes about the age we live in now where America used to be all about the immigrant story and, you know, coming here and yeah. making good. And the whole notion now that, you know, well, let, let's hurry up and build that wall. You know, that's, well, how the hell are they going to throw the pizza over it? <laughs> uh, but what about the tacos? There we go. Have, we not, have we not considered the tacos? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because, you know, on the other hand, I was telling Laurel, we were walking by Columbus Circle a couple weeks ago when I was in New York, mm-hmm. and I lamented to her that my favorite Peruvian sandwich place mm-hmm. has moved out of Manhattan in, into Queens. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me like, okay, Peruvian sandwich place is still somehow ethnic. <laughs> Jim, you have no idea how good these sandwiches were. Mm. Like I would, I, again, I, when I'm in New York, I don't go more than two blocks for anything, mm-hmm. right? But mm. I would go nine blocks for this sandwich. It was that good. Yeah, Peruvian sandwich place. If, you, if you've never been to one, you don't know what you're missing. Okay, okay. All right. So, so the next question on Nikki's survey was, what kinds of foods are you looking for in the parks but gave specific examples? And they were uh, low-carb, mm-hmm. organic, uh, lower, no sugar, um, all of the, you know, free from allergies like the soy, gluten, shellfish, nuts, so on. Mm-hmm. Um, various diets, so like vegan, paleo, keto. The interesting thing here was they mentioned kosher mm-hmm. but not halal. Hmm. And the reason why I thought that was surprising was if you look at the growth in populations mm-hmm. of uh, people who consider themselves Jewish and people who uh, consider themselves Muslim, mm-hmm. the number of Muslims in the United States will surpass the number of people who consider themselves Jewish, like in the next 10 or 15 years. Really? So, uh, huh? yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they're they're within a million or so mm-hmm. in terms of population right now, million, million and a half. Mm-hmm. And they'll be equally large, like in the next 10 or 15 years. So, I was wondering why, I mean, it could just be a miss, right? Okay. No big deal. Okay. I mean, yeah. Next set of questions was around how aware Nikki was about various dining options like, to the best of your knowledge, does Universal offer mm-hmm. kosher options? And then the next question after that was, should mm-hmm. Universal offer kosher options? And I thought this area of the survey could be better designed based on what Nikki had said earlier mm-hmm. in the survey. So, for example, if you, if you know Universal really well mm-hmm. – and you know that there is exactly one place at Universal mm-hmm. that offers kosher options. You would answer, yes, mm-hmm. I know it's offered, right? But you still want it to be offered in more places. But there was no option for that mm-hmm. and no follow-up question about that. So it's like saying, yeah, I know that there are kosher options available. That, I don't know what you're getting from about that other than the follow-up question should be, and is it in enough places? Mm-hmm. That is fascinating about does it offer or and should it offer? So. Is yeah. that a perception versus reality thing, or that's what I thought the first part was? But then the should, mm-hmm. like, do you know, and then should it, hmm. um, was interesting. I, I think the wording on that could have been a little no, bit better. No, I get that. I get the, that. Um, but here's the here's the next interesting thing. And you mentioned mm-hmm. the fact that a survey is often created to, to because people know what they want mm-hmm. for answers. The last question mm-hmm. was along the lines of, if we offered these different foods, mm-hmm. in what format? Would you like to see them offered? Mm-hmm. Snacks, appetizers, entrees, sides, desserts, drinks, mm-hmm. and so on. And I thought this was a great question because even if you're willing to try something new, mm-hmm. you may not want to risk a $40 entree mm-hmm. on it, but an appetizer or a side is a much more low-risk proposition. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I'd definitely be willing to, to spend $7 on food that I thought was interesting mm-hmm. but I might not like versus – you know, $45 for an entree. <laughs> Welcome to food and wine, Len. Well, you mentioned that yeah. because... 
I would not be surprised if Universal is looking at this mm-hmm. and saying, we've got something in the fall, but we don't have a spring event mm-hmm. to match Flower and Garden. You know, I suddenly feel like we need to pivot and take a closer look at how Epic Universe is set up, especially hmm. that interior area where the land, the land sort of all key off of. I wonder if we, we look at that, whether or not there's space in there for the Epcot equivalent of Festival Kitchens. You know, maybe Ooh, you think? maybe this is maybe you've actually hit on something here. Huh. So you think that uh, when Bob Iger announced that um, construction is largely done at Epcot, mm-hmm. it's because it moved all over to uh, Epic Universe? Well, no, I, I, <laughs> you know, to the <laughs> you know, just to the effect of maybe that's long term. I face it, you know, Epic Universe is going to have its challenges largely because right. when there's a convention in town, that place is going to be full, mm-hmm. and at least initially because of the 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 attractions and the newness, it's going to be full. But further on down the line, just getting people to go over there, you know, that this may be their festival park. Oh, good point. Good point. All right, Jim, we have time for a couple of listener questions. Mm -hmm. On last week's show, we mentioned that Disney would resume AP sales on April 13th. And on that day, we got an email from our friend, John Thompson, who said this, my enthusiasm to get an AP was tempered (laughs) when I was put in a virtual queue with a wait that, as of this writing, is more than three hours. So my question is this. Mm-hmm. Why, God, why? <laughs> what could be going on to make these waits so long? Putting on my IT guy hat, mm-hmm. I can come up with three possibilities, but frankly, none of them make sense. Mm-hmm. One, uh, Disney's throttling the user experience so that servers don't get overloaded. Mm-hmm. This seems the most likely, but for hours? There can't be that much demand, can there mm-hmm. be? I mean, maybe tens of thousands of people and their servers need hours to process that? Doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second option is that human intervention is somehow required in the process. This makes the wait seem logical, but why on earth would you put human intervention in this process? Mm-hmm. And then the third option is, I guess this is really the most likely explanation, processing that many credit card transactions. Mm-hmm. But still, really, it takes hours to process, maybe at most like 100,000 transactions. All right. So, uh, you know, again, putting on my IT hat, mm-hmm. and again, I don't know anything about computers, but mm-hmm. it's almost certainly item one that it's uh, so the servers don't get overloaded. But it also is a little bit of item three for reasons that I think you will find interesting. Mm-hmm. So so my first guess is that Disney doesn't want to write test and guarantee the code that would automatically scale its website up and down for sudden short bursts of traffic like annual pass holder sales. Mm-hmm. It's probably much easier and cheaper to just throttle the incoming traffic. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know that much about computers, but that seems like a decent guess. The other guess that John has about fraud mm-hmm. Uh, or processing credit card transactions is also correct. And I think it is actually fraud. Mm -hmm. So remember, Jim, that before I did this show, Mm -hmm. I was a director of technical architecture for a major credit card company. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty easy to find online list of credit card numbers and the corresponding names and billing addresses Mm -hmm. that go along with those. The thing that's harder to get, Jim, Mm -hmm. and that's needed for online transaction is the three or four digit card ID, Mm -hmm. the SID that's printed on the front or back of your card. However, uh, computing power is cheap, and a three-digit SID only has 1,000 possible combinations. The numbers 000 through 999. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to commit high-dollar fraud mm-hmm. on a credit card, the first thing you do is randomly generate like 250 of those 1,000 possible combinations mm-hmm. of, of card ID, and you submit 250 simultaneous requests to buy something like a tev- television or a computer, mm-hmm. which gives you a one-in-four chance of success. And believe it or not, Jim, there are actually some merchant and credit card systems that cannot detect mm-hmm. that sort of simultaneous action with sub-second response time. Mm-hmm. 
in which they have to get you an answer back to the customer for the sale anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you're a merchant who sells high dollar things, the last thing you want to do is to ship out a high dollar item and then have to dispute it with a credit card company because it's fraud. Because the the very best case that can happen there, Jim, is that you are only out the shipping costs Mm -hmm. and you eventually get your item back. The worst case is, is you're out the shipping and the cost. Hmm. Um, so anyway, so yeah, John, John, number three is also an option there. And I think that's why. Hmm. Well, okay. But the, appreciate the insight. There. Don't try this at home, kids. There we go. Yes. There we go. <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. don't do that. All right. Jim, also on last week's show, uh, which was on the Hollywood Studios history of who wants to be a millionaire play it, mm-hmm. we said at the end of the show, we asked uh, folks who had been in the hot seat mm-hmm. to send in their memories of playing the game. And Jim, a surprising number of listeners actually made it into the hot seat. Wow. Uh, Paul Schneblin mm-hmm. wrote in to say, uh, I got my one shot to play in 2002 or 2003. I was so nervous that even the host was sure I was going to pass out from <laughs> hyperventilating. <laughs> so I couldn't tell you much about the experience other than I made it to about the 250,000 point level. Mm-hmm. I managed to win a bunch of prizes, the 1,000 point hat, mm-hmm. the 32,000 point polo shirt, mm-hmm. along with a pin for each question I got correct. Mm-hmm. He said at least to the 32,000 point level, if I'd quit before blowing the question, I would have gotten pins up to that mm-hmm. level. He says, I wore the, the shirt to rags and the pin bag with the pins uh, has been packed away since my last move, but I have it and I wear the hat and he even sent in photos. Oh, thank you, uh, Paul. Wearing the hat. Also, uh, our good friend Joseph Matt got in the hot seat in 2002 at age 14 mm-hmm. and sent a photo of him wearing his millionaire hat. Uh, James Martin mm-hmm. had a great story. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, on January 1st, 2003, mm-hmm. I was in the hot seat and made it to the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the question was, but it had something to do with Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. Talison mm-hmm. West. The answer is always Talison West, James. Anyway, uh, I, <laughs> I gave what I thought was the correct answer, but unfortunately was wrong. Mm-hmm. I was pretty disappointed, and so was the audience, mm-hmm. but I still got some nice consolation prizes, including a hat that I never wore. Mm-hmm. After the show, another guest came up to me and told me that I actually provided the correct answer, mm-hmm. and that of the four choices, two mm-hmm. were correct answers. He advised me to contact Disney and talk to them. So my wife and I went back to the Wilderness Lodge and I got on the phone with guest services. After about an hour of transfers, I got in touch with somebody at either Imagineering or Hollywood Studios who's actually able to bring up the tape. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Jim, did you know they actually recorded those shows? I did not. Wow. Okay. Now we know. Now we know. There we yeah. go. Uh, so they brought up a tape of me answering the million point question. Mm-hmm. They asked for my phone number. And later that day, I got a call back from Disney stating I had indeed. Mm-hmm answered correctly, and was entitled to all the prizes. That included multiple pins, the aforementioned baseball Mm -hmm. cap, a varsity jacket, a big medallion that said million point Mm -hmm. winner, and most importantly, a trip to see Regis film the Mm -hmm. show, the actual show in New York City. Mm. All right. That's kind of awesome. That's a great story. That's a great story. Also, uh, Andy wrote in to say that one of his biggest disappointments in life Mm -hmm. was he was the next person to be in the millionaire chair when the episode he was attending reached its time limit and ended. Oh. Also, Jim, Mm -hmm. I know, terrible. Also, Jim, a puzzle from Jeff Clune. He says this, uh, we're at Hollywood Studios last Mm -hmm. week and saw the Beauty and the Beast show. Right before you enter the bleacher seating Mm -hmm. area, there are several names and dates written into the cement. Mm -hmm. And one of them is Monty Hall. And I'd been scratching my head trying to figure out why Monty Mm -hmm. Hall was in Hollywood Studios. Thanks to Jim and this week's podcast, though, the connection has been made with the presentation of Let's Make a Deal in Soundstage 1 in the early 90s. Thanks, mm-hmm. guys. P.S. Bob Denver from Gilligan's Island is also there. Any idea why? I want to say that there was, for a long time at MGM, a Celebrity of the Day program. And literally what, what would happen is around noon or 1 o'clock, the convertible would roll up the street and it would be 
some celebrity from a film or movies who you know and, and the thing is disney got them to come out because they'd contact them and say hey how would you you and your family like a vacation to walt disney world and we just need you for an afternoon to roll through the park do a yeah. handprint ceremony in front of the chinese theater and then depending on how popular the celebrity was they would do a, a question and answer period with it so bob oh. probably was uh, one of the folks who did that and uh, disney then ended up with this warehouse full of handprints that they repurposed around the park so that's probably how monty hall and, and bob denver actually ended up in the beauty and the beast theater so now when you need to replace some concrete at hollywood studios they go out to a warehouse and say mary tyler moore here we go <laughs> and I put that in front of the churro cart my uh so my guess and it was a stretch mm. was that somehow uh mgm back when they uh were partnered with disney mm -hmm. mgm owned the syndication rights to gilligan's island that was my guess but i could be wrong okay. well i'll go take a look at that all right. Also, uh, last thing, uh, in last week's show, I mentioned that in English, uh, words that are both nouns and mm -hmm. verbs have when they're said aloud, stress on different syllables, mm -hmm. so they sound different, like record and record. Mm -hmm. A number of people wrote in to provide exceptions to this mm -hmm. rule. So Peter came up with swim and swim. Mm -hmm. Andy sent in act and act. And Jason said in drink and mm -hmm. drink. So two things. Okay, new rule uh, amendment, monosyllabic words are an exception. Two, guys, this is why you don't get invited to parties. <laughs> This is it. Right here. Right here. All so right. no drink, no drink, and no swim and swim for you. So. <laughs> All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the changes Universal's making to its Lost Continent section of Islands of Adventure and what that might mean. We'll be right back. Do you feel like you need a bit more magic in your life? Why not give Storybook Destinations a try? Storybook Destinations is an authorized Disney vacation planner, and all their counselors who work for this full-service travel agency have received extensive training when it comes to the Disney theme parks, resorts, cruises, vacation packages, and more. These travel professionals have years of experience when it comes to planning customized Disney vacations, which is why you can always book with confidence when it's the Storybook Destination team that's helping you find the vacation of your dreams. Best of all, they offer their booking and planning services at no cost to you. So if you're once again ready to travel, why not learn more about what Storybook Destination has to offer by visiting their website, www.storybookdestinations.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. All right, Jim. Universal announced this week the May 9th closure of the Poseidon's Fury stage show in the Lost Continent section of Islands of Adventure. So Poseidon's Fury is an opening day attraction mm -hmm. at IOA. It's had a good run. Lost Continent is, of course, that area between Hogwarts mm -hmm. and Seuss Landing, which isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It has, obviously, Poseidon's Fury, the Mythos Restaurant, and then, what, a gift shop, Treasures of Poseidon? Yeah, yeah. Poseidon's Fury has been up and down over that period, but Mythos, right. every time I go by there, it's got that banner out front, the most popular restaurant. From, from 2019. There we go. So. Yeah. Jim, I, uh, uh, I'm betting, though, that the Treasures of Poseidon store, although it's popular, mm -hmm. probably does not have the revenue 
of the Super Mario Brothers movie, oh, no. which has already done almost $400 million in global box yeah. office on its opening weekend and could earn Nintendo itself a billion dollars. Yeah. Do those two things have anything to do with each other? It'll take a while to get there, but but yeah, <laughs> there could be a Nintendo-related reason why Poseidon's Fury Escape from the Lost City is going away. I'm sure you saw that we now have an official close date for Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain. It's uh, May 31st of this year, and in that very same month, we, we also lose uh, Poseidon's Fury Escape from the Lost City. That closes on May 9th. And yes, okay, Poseidon's Fury is not as beloved as Splash. I mean, it opened with the rest of IOA back in May of 99, and it's supposedly set in the ruins of the great Lord Poseidon's temple. Now, Splash, what they think of is that 52-foot drop down Chickapin Hill. On the other hand, right. have you done Poseidon's Fury? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, the effects are... Uh... The effects and the cheesy acting are the two draws. Oh, well, there we go. There's two things that are memorable about this attraction. One is the transition from the pre-show to the main theater. And that's where the, yeah, the that 40-foot yeah. long, 18-foot in diameter water vortex that you walk through. And then over at the Turing Plans website, you guys have a video up from that, that shows mm-hmm. the actual construction of IOA. And they talk about... The 40 nozzles that are set up around the outside of this 18-foot in diameter tunnel and and the way the water goes over your head and doesn't come down on you is, Len, it's it's shooting out of nozzles at 90 to 100 miles an hour. If you think about Mm -hmm. this show, right, and you think about, remember inside the old Mm -hmm. Twister attraction, they would actually create a miniature tornado in front of guests. They would. You know, it's rare... For the theme park industry mm-hmm. to try and create their own natural disasters <laughs> right in front of guests. But this, Jim, this is where Universal swings for the fences. And I, for one, applaud yeah. it. <laughs> you know, well, in fact, I remember going into the, the Twister attraction and, and on, on a tour once. And the guide actually took us over to the door and showed us in the middle of the show when the actual tornado effect is going on inside the building yeah. it was so strong you couldn't open the door to get out does the word fire codes mean anything to anybody these days again jim do you want to be entertained or do you want to be safe because you can have one there or the we other go. <laughs> apparently <Okay>. apparently <laughs> all right well, well look islands right from the get-go was a technically ambitious yeah. park i mean you, you look no further than the scoops that guests write in over in the amazing adventures of spider-man and but the thing that was interesting about Poseidon's this Fury is amazing effects. But the story was kind of meh, you know, which is why June of 2001, I mean, this thing hadn't been open more than two years at this point. The attraction was shut down and reopened as Poseidon's Fury escaped from the Lost City. And, and now instead of an angry Poseidon fighting with his brother Zeus, now it was Poseidon who was the attraction's hero, and he was battling evil Lord Darkanon. And, and when the, the best name you can come up with for the villain is, is Darkanon, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you're yeah. not even trying. Uh, the other effect I think people remember so much about Poseidon's Fury is the attraction's finale, where, you know, you had that battle between Poseidon and Lord Darkanon going on, uh, 102 different water and fire effects going on. The room gets dark, it fills with fog, and then when the fog lifts, you're back in the antechamber where the attraction began. Yeah. And 
Did you ever manage to make it into Star Trek The Experience at the Las Vegas Hilton? So Laurel and I went there one time and we played uh, uh, Game Show Game Show there as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, uh, it was quite the experience. But okay. Now, if, if you did Star Trek The Experience, do you remember that moment in the experience where you're you're in a space where it's mm-hmm. basically a Star Trek museum. You're surrounded by props and costumes yep. uh, from the movies and TV shows. Then you hear... Th- and then Terry Crews comes on and says, something's been right. stolen. Okay. And all of a sudden, the scene changes, right? right? I mean, uh, you hear <laughs> transporter effect, you get a, bright lights come up, and when when you you can get oriented again you are standing on the transporter pad of the enterprise d yeah. and you're actually being hustled out of the room to go to the bridge of the ship and it's one of these things where how the hell did i get here and it turns yeah. out that's the exact same effect that was used in Poseidon's Fury, what what it basically was is that in the ceiling of the finale room on a cantilever is an identical version of the room you just left in the pre-show. And when it gets dark and the room fills with fog, the room comes down around you, the, the smaller room. Is that it, how it works? I thought stuff came no. up. So you know, comes down to the ceiling around you. So that, and the beauty part of it is, is that when you go to reset, it just all rises back into the ceiling, waits for the next bunch to come through. Oh, and the ceiling makes sense because if it came from the floor, you would feel it. There we go. Got it. Oh, no, that. All right, I learned something today. No, it was a cool effect. And and when Poseidon's Fury is gone, we'll all miss that along with the water vortex. But you mentioned at the top of uh, today's show. The other attraction that, frankly, we want lost over in Lost Continent uh, during the last five years, and that's the eighth Voyage of Sinbad stunt show. Sinbad. 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 And that opened with the park uh, in May of 99, and it closed back on September 15, 2018. Jim, I, I don't want to tell you how much time I spent researching for the mm-hmm. show, whether the, the name Sinbad, S-I-N-D-B-A-D, mm-hmm was just an attempt to get around the copyright of Sinbad. <laughs> like I, spent, I spent a good hour on it, like trying to figure out, like, is this some sort of like trademark scheme they're trying to get around? Like, But it turns out that uh, both Sinbad, S-I-N-B-A-D, and then Sinbad are both uh, acceptable spelling in Arabic for the, uh, for the story. So, fair. They were initially shooting with Lost Continent to be authentic. And, yep. and in fact, it was kind of, yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. about Lost Continent is is when it opened in May of 99, it was actually three mini lands. You know, we start at the bottom of the hill with the Lost City, which is where Poseidon's Fury is located. And that's supposed to be a ruined Greek city that's now the home of the gods of old. Then we move, move to sure. the middle space. And this is Sinbad's Bazaar, a Middle Eastern place who, frankly... I always stop to watch the fountain in the middle there. Talking fountain. Yes, it yeah. lures in small children and then drenches them. And then finally, when you, you got to the top of the hill, you reach Merlinwood, uh, an area that celebrated uh, the legends of King Arthur in medieval Europe. And folks probably remember the signature uh, attractions here was the dragon challenge, excuse me, the dueling dragons, the fire dragon and the ice dragon that went simultaneously. There was also the Royal Oak Tavern, uh, the the giant stump-shaped building that had the face of Merlin on the exterior. So I didn't make it over to IOA Mm -hmm. 
until after Merlin Wood closed. And I didn't oh. know about this till you sent over the show notes. So yep. that's that's where Dueling Dragons came from, from Merlin Wood? Well, yeah. That, that it was originally the oh. Dueling Dragons, which then, when it became Potter, was, was renamed and rethemed as the Dragon Challenge. Also, oh. worth noting that in June of 2000, just after the first anniversary of, of the opening of IOA, they also opened the Flying Uniform uh, Unicorn uh, Coaster, which, of course, today we know is the Flying Hippogriff. But, yeah, so, uh, you know, this is how the land existed with the three mini lands from the opening till May of 2007 when Universal Parks and Resorts announces that they've entered into this partnership with uh, Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling to create a, a Harry Potter-themed land in Iowa. And... So Merlinwood closes in July of 2008, and they then begin to transform these 20 acres at the top of the hill in Lost mm. Continent into Hogsmeade. 20 acres is actually a decent portion of the entire park, though, right? Oh, yeah. You know, the IOA total is only 110 acres. And I was talking with Mark Woodbury about when they changed over the Royal Oak Tavern into mm-hmm. the Hogshead Tavern. And uh, the three broomsticks. And oh, kitchen remodels are the best, Jim. <laughs> this is the thing. Mark told me about how they convinced themselves that they were going to save money. They tore down the Royal Oak Tavern and took the entire kitchen set up there for this quick service restaurant and wrapped it in heavy industrial plastic and then built the Hogshead Tavern and the three broomsticks up around the pre-existing kitchen. And in the end, Mark you know, said we were idiots. The pennies we saved, it was so miserable to build around that equipment and then to bring it back online after all of that time. We should have just done the smart thing and flattened it and built a brand new kitchen. With the experience of age, I have learned two mm-hmm. things yep. about moving and remodeling. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is when you're deciding, when you've decided to move, mm-hmm. Simply sell or throw away all of your possessions and start over in your new place. It is by far the easiest and in the long term most satisfactory thing. The second thing is, mm-hmm. is when remodeling, yep. first demolish everything mm-hmm. and to start over and build what you want. It is vastly easier and simpler. I will keep this in mind during spring cleaning this one. This hard won wisdom, Jim. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, so now we're building Harry Potter land. We're building Harry Potter land, but in the middle of this, uh, December of 2009, Comcast announces its intention to acquire NBC Universal, parent company of the, sure. the Universal Parks and Resorts. The park itself opens in June of 2010. Uh, Harry, Harry Potter opens. In it, Harry Potter opens uh, uh, this, uh, June of 2010. Okay. So a few months later, they're doing. They're, they're doing the takeover. They are. And it's the discovery period. This is the time where Comcast officials can now officially go through the Universal Parks books and see what's yeah. going on. And yeah. this is the story as it's been explained to me, Len. Comcast officials learn that the wizarding world of Harry Potter isn't just making money hand over fist. It's actually managed in just five months' time, Len, to recover its entire $170 million construction costs just on the sale of Butterbeer. 
Wow. And at this point, the Comcast people are like, whatever you want to do <laughs> with, with Harry Potter, we are on board with. So December of 2011, Universal Parks announced that they will be making a significant expansion of the Wizarding World in Florida. Uh, likewise, the clones of Hogsmeade will be built at Universal Studios Hollywood as well as Universal Studios Japan. This is after Comcast has officially closed in 51% of the company. So January 2012, suddenly the Jaws attraction closes over at Universal Studios Florida. And we then learn in the subsequent year, well, that's where we're building Diagon Alley. And, you know, yeah. we're not only going to build Diagon Alley, we're going to connect the Hogsmeade and Diagon Alley with the Hogwarts Express, you know, and, and you know, you know that someone's going through every single attraction and character mm -hmm. in the Universal Parks and going, the shark, can we make the shark a wizard? <laughs> and if the answer is no, it's like, well, we don't need the shark. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. So, um, Diagon Alley opens July 8th, 2014. Some people are still in line, Jim. They are. Though, just a week later, uh, at Universal Studios Japan, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter Hogsmeade op opens there. So, think about it. You had these two huge Potter-related projects being built, and this is involving the folks at Warner Brothers, Stuart Craig, the art director of the original Harry Potter mm -hmm. film. So, I mean, this is a, a lot of heavy lifting. He's getting some frequent flyer miles. That he is. That he is. And then two years later, April of 2016, Wizarding World opens at Universal Studios Hollywood. Then Universal takes a thing that's making money hand over fist, and, and it looks at the Dragon Challenge ride, which, again, is built on the back of, you know, the old Dueling Dragons. Merlin would, apparently. Okay. Yeah, and sure. it's just like, you know, we can do better. And so they closed down the Dragon Challenge uh, September 4th, 2017. And less than two years later, in June of 2019, we get Hagrid's Magical Creature Motorbike Adventure. So that's, uh, that's less than one third of a Tron. <laughs> yes, yes. It's only like 47 Scaramucci's. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, he's a listener. I'm just saying it's, it's fine. It's fine. It always fascinates me that the speed at which Universal works... And, and speaking of which, uh, Hagrid's is barely open two months when we yeah. learned that Universal Orlando has a third park in the works, Epic Universe. Yep. And this park will, will reportedly feature a third Harry Potter-themed land, one that keys off of the Ministry of Magic, which brings us back to the closure of the eighth voyage of Sinbad in the Sinbad Bazaar section of Lost Continent. Uh, Likewise. Oh, okay. See, I see, okay, I see where you're going here, because when you and I were walking through Universal the last time, mm -hmm. we thought that Ministry of Magic was going to go in Universal Studios. We did. We did. And in fact, there was some discussion in the old Wild Wild West stage setup there uh, just at the end of, of the Lagoon that this was what they were going to try to shoehorn it in. But in the end, it was just, you know, determined that there was just enough, not enough room for what they wanted to do. And more to the point, Given the scale that the Ministry of Magic is now being built at, at Epic Universe, it's going to dwarf Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey or for Escape from Gringotts. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I believe it's Alicia Stella who's, who's done a lot of the heavy lifting here. But basically, you're going to be there at the Ministry the day that Dolores Umbridge is coming up for trial for working with uh, Lord Voldemort. And things go sideways while you're in the building. It's going to be an amazing traction. But 
Back now to IOA and the fact that if you think about it, we built our train station so that the Hogwarts Express can bring us from Hogsmeade back to platform, you know, nine and three quarters. So there has been a lot of talk, Len, about a whomping willow spinner, likewise a shrieking shack dark ride that could be built further up on the hillside. So it would extend the footprint of the Wizarding World approximately into where the 8th Voyage of Sinbad Stunt Theater is located. But the thing I think that's a little more interesting is what supposedly is being considered for the area where Poseidon's Fury is located. And that brings us back to Nintendo. Do you remember when they were initially talking about Super Nintendo World being built over at Universal Studios uh, Florida. In fact, they, they... In the kids in the kids section. That's right. And, you know, yeah. there's a Mario Kart ride there, was a Donkey Kong, and there was also going to be a Legend of Zelda attraction. And oh, what appears to be happening now is, of course, the Mario Kart stuff is going into Epic Universe, but it would appear there are some very serious dis- discussions about a Legend of Zelda attraction occupying the space that now uh, we know for Poseidon's Fury, the Lost City. Again, you just talked about the box office that the Super Mario Brothers movie did over its opening weekend Mm -hmm. worldwide, over $400 million. And Universal signed a contract with these folks back in 2015, 2016, to start bringing these things into the park. And, And the whole notion is, well... Where would a Legend of Zelda best fit in the pre-existing Universal properties? And it's like, hey, look at Lost Continent. What's, what's the backstory of Zelda? It's an it, adventure game with sort of magic medieval theming. Because it's been around forever. I think the first one came out like when I was in high school. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. But it's everything, you know, you, you want, you know, the sword play, the like, and it just sort of, it would be a wonderful fit uh... for this section of the park. Now... The question, of course, is what happens with Mythos, and that's still a hugely popular restaurant at this park with a wonderful view of the lagoon there. But when you think about, for example, what's going on with Production Central right now, where you have VillainCon being built right across from Despicable Me, Minion Mayhem, which will now be just up the road from the Minion restaurant, and then, of course, the whole DreamWorks area that's going into the old kids area, They're leaning in to developing specific sections that celebrate specific, you know, franchises and sets of characters. I guess the question I would have is, would you would you put all the Nintendo stuff in Epic Universe except for Zelda? As of right now, all we know that's going into Epic Universe is the Mario Kart. Much of the stuff that we saw out in California during our visit, I I have heard. Right. Uh, there might be an expansion pad there that the Donkey Kong attraction that's also uh, rumored for Universal Hollywood could be built there. But at the same time, in much the same way as Potter is a strong presence in Islands, in uh, Universal Studios Florida, and soon to be an epic universe. And if you're trying to drive people into your uh, each of your three parks in Florida long range it it probably makes sense that each of those parks has its own nintendo ride so or nintendo land it's really interesting so yeah so every park would have uh, would have similar franchises just different takes there we go there we on go on the stories oh interesting huh. 
All right, that makes sense. All right, we'll see what happens there. That's uh, yeah, but th- th- I think this is a was a mildly surprising um, announcement, and they can go a number of ways. Oh, no, 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 definitely here. So it'll be in- definitely, yeah, it'll be interesting to see which way they go. All right, cool, good, good, good job, Jim. Just uh, get have been watching this space since the eighth voyage of Sinbad closed back in in two thousand eighteen, and it, it it looks like mm-hmm. the chess pieces are are moving in a, dif- a very distinct direction. So, oh, good. All right, excited to see what uh, what happens yep. there. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jimmy Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, mm-hmm. where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. So Jim and I just mentioned we were out in Disneyland and Universal Studios with Imagineer Jim Scholl, uh, and we did a couple of tours of Disneyland and Universal Studios there. And then Jim and I walked around Walt Disney World uh, two weekends ago, Jim, right? We did. We did. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And all of those shows are available over at DisneyDish.com. Bandcamp.com. On next week's show, we're going to talk about a bunch of things, including some new advice I have on how to tour Hollywood studios without paying for Genie Plus. You can find more of Jim at jimmyhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. We'll be in conversation with Akeem Bellamy, poet laureate of the city of Albuquerque, on Bellamy's book, Commissions y Corridos, on Saturday, May 20th, 2023, at the Santa Fe International Literary Festival in the Santa Fe Community Convention Center on Marcy Street in beautiful downtown Santa Fe, New Mexico. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.